They took it all, and I don't care. Already said my farewell. Sweet Palmyra and that old Ninth Ward have to hit that long road that passes straight through hell. I wish you well, sweet Palmyra. Jolie Holland, 2008. Hello, and welcome to The Wonders of the World, the podcast that visits the great places on Earth to tell the story of our people, our civilization, and our planet. This week, episode 40, what was supposed to be the seventh wonder of the Hellenistic era, the Temple of Bel, and Palmyra, Syria. The lyrics that open this episode are from a song about New Orleans, Louisiana, a city which was ravaged by a hurricane in 2005. And there's a resonance between the great human and cultural losses that hit that city and the one that hit Palmyra, Syria, just three short years ago. And this is an episode that I wasn't really going to do. In 2015, terrorists from ISIS, or Daesh, or ISIL, or whatever you want to call them, occupied and destroyed the great ruins of Palmyra. And according to UNESCO, virtually nothing remains. Safe travel to Syria in general and the desert around the ruins will be impossible for the foreseeable future. You're not going here, and there's no here to go to. Not anymore. And there have been rumblings about restoring the site and rebuilding the temples, but the damage was so significant and the outlook so grim that for only the second time, I removed this site from my personal list of 200 wonders to be replaced by the site I'll cover in the next episode. So why is there an episode now? Well, because the story of Palmyra and its warrior queen who challenged two empires and nearly pulled it off is way too good to pass up. Because I can't talk about the Roman 4th century without talking about the 3rd century. Because if we don't talk about what we've lost in this Palmyra, we might not fight to save the next one. To talk about the city and its queen, I'm delighted to once again have on Scott Chesworth from the Ancient World podcast. His extended series on this topic is simply outstanding, and you should check it out. It's an amazingly compelling story, and yeah, a horrific tragedy on both a human and, and monumental scale. Two of the most prominent features of the Palmyra ruins were the Temple of Bel and Temple of Balshamin, which were both absolutely obliterated within a very short time frame of one another. It's a shame, and you know, like you, I'm guessing I do hope that someday the political situation will be such that I have the opportunity to visit the ruins. But you know, obviously, those will be a tremendous loss. I'm also excited to welcome listener Dave Adam, who has been to Palmyra and who saw the temples there before they were destroyed. And he's called in to be able to give his impressions as to what he experienced there in Syria. We'll have more from Scott and Dave shortly, but let's set the stage. Let's pull out that satellite map of the Middle East. Along the Mediterranean, there's a bit of green, but as you move east beyond the rift valleys of the Orontes and Jordan rivers, you quickly reach the beige of the desert. Only two ribbons of blue and green break the vast expanses, the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. Their course, stretching from the hinterlands of modern Turkey down across Syria and Iraq to the Persian Gulf, trace the original famous Fertile Crescent. Now, if you're a trader carrying goods from China or India on the way to the Roman East, these rivers are super highways. But there's a problem. The rivers can only take you so far. Past a certain point, you either have to trek across the hills of Anatolia or else the desert. Across that desert lay a few cities, which have been there for time immemorial. And one of those cities sits in the desert itself, Tadmor. The Amorites originally built it on the site of a great oasis, surrounded by palm trees, about 250 kilometers northeast of Damascus. By 1000 BCE, the Aramaeans had moved in. Tadmor had water, plenty of water, and they built a relatively happy life in the desert with their date palms. Around the early Roman Empire, though, things began to change. Someone must have given them a map. They figured out that by crossing the desert from the Euphrates through their city, a caravan could shave days and weeks off their journey up and around the crescent or 
across the much longer trek through Petra. Soon they had established outposts and towns on the Euphrates, like Dura Europas. They would buy and sell there and carry goods across the desert to Tadmor and then on to the rest of Syria and Phoenicia and the broader Roman Empire. And other caravans could come too and avail themselves of Tadmorian hospitality. It was a hit, and soon the trade and the coins came rolling in. The Romans came as well, as the sound of gold clinking always draws imperial interest. Initially, it was Republican interest in the form of Mark Antony, but eventually the city settled on the periphery of the Roman orbit. Like Pluto, it's in orbit, but it's way the heck out and very eccentric. The Romans couldn't pronounce Tadmor, I guess, because they gave the city a different name, the name we use today, Palmyra, in honor of the date palms that lie in the springs. This fabulous wealthy city, with a population in the 2nd century of up to 200,000 people, which is insane in the desert, built monuments befitting its status. Temples, arches, and gates, all for the richest city of its age. Its main street was lined by a grand colonnade, over a kilometer of column after column after column on both sides, each topped with Corinthian capitals and carrying brackets, which held statues of leading citizens. The colonnade ran from the West Gate to the Great Temple of Bell, which honored their local sun god. The temple was a marvel. I called it a Hellenistic wonder in a way that's true. It was vast, standing on a substantial platform. Okay, that's pretty typical. It had Corinthian columns lining its width and length, just like other Roman or Greek temples we've seen. But the rectangular enclosed space inside the columns was manifestly eastern. And much like the temple in Jerusalem, it was surrounded by a vast 40,000 square meter courtyard, lined by an immense wall with a stately entrance gate. Its roofline wasn't the typical pitched roof of the Parthenon, for example. Instead, it was flat, with a short tower on each end, all lined with tooth-like triangle prominences, so that it looked jagged. Inside, the strangeness continued. Instead of a front door, like the Parthenon or the Pantheon, the Temple of Bell had a side door in the middle of a long wall, so that when entering, you had to choose to turn either to the north or to the south sanctuary. Windows let in light and staircases allowed access to terraces on the roof. It was Palmyra's jewel. And in the 3rd century CE, the city's moment on the world stage truly arrived. Palmyra was wedged between two great empires, both going through some problems. To the east lay Persia, Previously ruled by the Parthians, Persia now fell under the control of the far more centralized Sassanids, or Sasanians, depending on which you prefer. The first Sassanid emperor, Ardashir I, had conquered Persia during the reign of Alexander Severus, Elagabalus' cousin, and the two emperors battled in Mesopotamia, with Ardashir coming out on top. His son Shapur would defeat Rome on many occasions, raiding deep into Roman lands, even sacking Antioch at one point. Wait a minute, you ask. Antioch? The capital of the Roman East? The second city of Rome sacked by the Persians? How could this happen? Where were the Roman legions? Well... After a reasonable 13 years on the throne, Alexander Severus was killed by his own troops in 235, a third of the way into that third century. Historians often call what followed the crisis of the 3rd century. A crisis because it was a crisis and the, of the 3rd century because it was of the 3rd century. It's a very convenient naming standard. In the prior 262 years, since Octavian became the Augustus, 24 men had ruled as emperor, with two more as joint emperors. That's an average of 10 years per emperor, and that includes the year of the four emperors with our buddies Galba, Otho, and Vitellius, and the year of civil war with Pertinax and Julianus. So even with those guys, 
We still had 10 years per emperor. The next 50 years would see 22 emperors or joint emperors and several other usurpers and claimants. 22 official emperors in 50 years. And of those, only one, only one died of natural causes. So, to get us caught up, here's a brief, brief, brief run through. Remember, this takes many episodes of the history of Rome, and each of these fellows gets their own episode on Totalis Rankium. So if you want to go into detail, go visit our friends and be my guest. <clears throat> I'm going to try to do this quickly. Maximinus Thrax kills Alexander and takes over. Three years later, his tax official in Africa tries to squeeze the landlords and causes the governor Gordian I and his son Gordian II to revolt. The Senate made them both emperor. Maximinus beats them. Gordian II killed in battle. Gordian I suicide. The Senate now appoints two senators, Balbinus and Pupianus. <laughs> he said Pupianus. And also Gordian II's son, Gordian III. Maximinus is killed by his own troops, but so are Balbinus and Pupianus. <laughs> he said Pupianus. Gordian III, aged 13, is sole emperor. All that happens in 238. Six years later, he dies in battle against the Sassanids or possibly killed by his own troops. His prefect, Philip the Arab, takes over. Five years later, he either dies in battle against a rebel senator turned general named Decius or he's killed by his own troops. Decius takes over. Two years after that, Decius is killed in battle with the Goths. His son, Hostilian, takes over along with the army general, Gallus. Hostilian immediately dies, likely murdered, and Gallus takes over. Two years later, the Danube legions proclaim the general Emilianus emperor. His forces defeat Gallus's, and Gallus is killed by his own troops. Emilianus takes over. Three months later, the Rhine legions come south with their commander, Valerian, and Emilianus is killed by his own troops. Valerian takes over. Whew. So that's 12 emperors in 18 years. But Valerian couldn't settle things down too much, because this is when the Persians sacked Antioch. Leaving his son Gallienus to handle the west, he set off to face the Sassanids. Seven years after taking power, Valerian lost the war and was captured, captured by Sasanian forces and forced to serve as a footstool for Shapur, the king of kings. Gallienus takes over. Valerian, it is said, was eventually forced to drink molten gold, which killed him, was flayed, and had his skin stuffed with straw to serve as a memento. That may not be true, but that's where we are. Gallienus is emperor, and life is a freaking mess in Rome. Because almost immediately, revolts flare up across the empire, and every general, colonel, and lieutenant colonel seeks to claim the purple for himself. Gallienus has no credentials beyond being Valerian's son and co-ruler. He's 42, but still untested. And in the first two years, seven revolts break out including one by a gentleman named Posthumus, which leads to the succession of Germania, Gaul, and Britain as the Gallic Empire. And even worse, Rome is in the grips of a massive plague, the Plague of Cyprian, which we think could have been measles or maybe even a hemorrhagic fever like Ebola. At the height of the plague, 5,000 people were dying every day just in the city of Rome. With all that civil war and disease, it's no wonder the borders weren't terribly secure. Gallienus needed help. The economy was in shambles. The Persians were on the move. The Gauls had already left. Everything was coming up garbage. Luckily, there was Palmyra. They had money. They had supplies. They had foot soldiers. Because they had to protect the caravans, right? They even had a leader. His name was Odonathus. So let's bring back Scott for more on Palmyra. Historically, Palmyra is this little oasis town that somehow becomes a really rich and prosperous oasis town. Um, despite the oasis not being terribly big, I don't, I don't think. Um, <laughs> right. He has this amazing connection then on the, the silk trade by sea up the river and then across right. the, the Syrian desert. All of that seems to really necessitate Persia playing nice <laughs> and the powers that control Mesopotamia being peaceful and harmonious and allowing traders to come up and down. With the rise of Ardashir and Shapur and the Sassanids, 
how much of Palmyra's military strength comes from dealing with that as opposed to the lack of help from Rome. You're definitely right that the Palmyrenes, a large portion of their you know, income traditionally was from the silk trade. There are two main locations where the caravans or where the ships arrived from which the Palmyrenes would take it all the way back to Palmyra. The two main entry points were Cherax on the Persian Gulf and Seleucia on the Tigris, a little ways up the Euphrates. And then the Palmyrenes not only had extensive colonies in both those places, but they had colonies dotting all the way up the Euphrates. So once the silks came in there, it was all golden and they could just kind of run with it. So everything was pretty good with Parthia up until around the 160s. And that's where Marcus Aurelius got elevated. The fact that he wanted to split rule with Lucius Ferris gave the Parthians the idea that maybe he wasn't a strong ruler Mm. and they could try to take Armenia. There was kind of a short, sharp conflict over the course of a couple years. And the end result, one of them was that the Roman general Avidius Cassius absolutely destroyed Seleucia on the Tigris. And the other was that Cherax maybe became a bit more restricted as an entry port because the Parthians may not have been too happy with Rome and Rome-allied states. The Palmyrenes weathered that phase okay. Sure. But when the Sassanids came to power, when Ardashir came to power... They just right off the bat like a zipper, they just rolled up all those Palmyrene trade colonies all along the Euphrates and basically said, get out. We want nothing to do with allies of Rome. We're going to take more centralized control of this stuff. So it was a major crisis for the Palmyrenes. Right. You look at the period when Odenathus first came to power. That was right after... The Roman Emperor Gordian III had been killed by Shapur. Philip the Arab was with his tail between his legs, getting ready to go back west. On the way out, this local ruler named Odenathus got proclaimed essentially the chief of Palmyra. And Philip the Arab on the way out also made him a Roman senator to give him some extra oomph. Great. And that's kind of when Odenathus began his climb power-wise. One of his other great bumps was, you know, again, the next major Roman emperor to come east was Valerian. And we all know what happened to him. I mean, he was taken captive alive by Shapur. I think the decision was made with the track record in the east of some of these campaigns that Palmyra couldn't really rely on Rome to secure the frontier (laughs) with Persia. They kind of had to take a little bit more responsibility on themselves. And the Roman emperors recognized that. And here we're mainly talking about Gallienus. He was Valerian's son. And in the period after Valerian's capture, for literally the next 15 years, aside from usurpers and the break off Gallic Empire, he was the main player. Which is, I mean, fascinating to think about because he's like this one guy <laughs> who he lasts longer than anyone else during the crisis of the third century. And He does so by basically saying, you know what? I can't handle it. You know, (laughs) Palmyra, you go ahead and take the east. It's fine. uh, uh, Posthumous. Yeah, you want Gaul, you fine. Gaul, Britain, you take that. That's fine. Just leave me Africa. Leave me the grain. And I'll just sort of hold the fort and we'll weather the storm and then we'll see what happens. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's maybe not necessarily all on him, but Gallienus doesn't have what's needed to reunify this empire. And he plays a very practical game. He's like, I can't do anything about Odenathus, so I'm going to promote him. You know, I'm going to make him legitimate. I'm going to make sure he's still subordinate to me in all legal aspects, etc. But he eventually elevates him as far as this rule called Dux Orientis, which can be taken a few different ways. But one legitimate way to take that is essentially giving him the Eastern Imperium, basically giving him rule of all Roman territories, maybe as broad as from... Cilicia down to Arabia Petraea, not Egypt, because that's always going to be a Roman emperor controlled region. But 
So he just keeps elevating him up and saying, as long as you are protecting us from the Persians and nominally paying obeisance to me, yeah, do what you want. I got other problems. I got usurpers popping up every week. I've got this whole Gallic empire right next door that you got to try to focus my energies on and to try to reclaim. So Gallienus was a hands-off guy. He gave Odinathus carte blanche to run the east. Odinathus came from a family of wealthy merchants, and he had risen up during the early years of the crisis. But now that Valerian was dead and the empire under great threat, he took over. He declared himself king of Palmyra and attacked the Persians. And he won. Twice. Marching all the way to Tessaphon on the Tigris. One of the consequences of him being left on his own to manage the East was, okay, all your trade is being blocked up by the hostile Persians, and now you're in control of this whole East. You've got to pay for this. You've got to maintain the army. You've got to, and, and you know, yes, there's taxes and things like that you can collect. But one of my theories also is a lot of the reasons that Odinathus kind of went on the offensive against the Persians was he was just trying to get booty to kind of top up his coffers. Oh, sure. I mean, I mean, the Persians were doing the same thing, you know, under Shapur, particularly in Syria, too. They never held any territory. I mean, aside from kind of all their big claims early on that the Sassanids were going to reclaim the old Achaemenid Empire all the way to the Grecian Sea, all they did was raid, take slaves and take a lot of money and do a lot of damage. And my theory about that is that Shapur kind of realized he probably couldn't hold that territory because he was overextended, but it was a great place to get money and slaves for all his building projects. Right. And I think when Odinathus felt he'd turned the tables a bit, I think he kind of figured payback was fair. Like, let's raid into Persia. Let's help make up for some of this diminished income from them destroying all our trade colonies. So I think that's kind of the genesis of the Palmyrenes going on the offensive against Persia. Odinathus established a nice little kingdom. Within two years, he was styling himself the King of Kings, a title made famous by Cyrus and Darius and used by Persian emperors ever since. He was joined in his reign by his wife, his second wife actually, named Zenobia. She's the heroine of this episode, the warrior queen of Palmyra. According to the ever-reliable Historia Augusta, quote, her face was dark and of a swarthy hue, her eyes were black and powerful beyond the usual want, her spirit divinely great and her beauty incredible. So white were her teeth that many thought she had pearls in place of teeth. On the other hand, remember that was written over a hundred years after the fact and you know how these sorts of things can be. We don't have any contemporaneous depictions of Zenobia aside from coins, which are idealized and make her appear more Roman than she likely was. So while it's nice to think that she was beautiful and gorgeous, all powerful women in ancient lore are beautiful and gorgeous. That's how they're defined. Hmm. In 267, Odinathus was at the height of his powers. Under the aegis of Rome, he held sway over everything from Palestine to Cilicia. He was king of kings, giving only lip service to Gallienus. But then, it was over. For him, anyway. We don't know exactly what happened. Some say his nephew, possibly angry about being passed over for promotion or humiliated by a hunting event, conspired to assassinate Odinathus. Others suggest it was his cousin. Some think that Gallienus had a hand in it. Others blame Zenobia. I lean toward an angry lone wolf relative. But regardless, both the king and his oldest son were dead leaving the city in the hands of his eight-year-old son, Babalathus. But the real power was the boy's mother, Zenobia. Throughout this, then, Palmyra goes from being, again, like a, a rich but small town, right in an oasis, to getting control of pretty much the whole Roman East under Zenobia and her armies. And, hey, how the heck do you get in armies like that? I, mean, I guess they, <laughs> they join up because we're the dukes or the imperator. We've got all the, the, the legal authority. Uh, but I mean, just, it just blows my mind that it's not like a slow process. 
at all. Transition is, is the interesting part from Odonathus to Zenobia. Essentially, what Zenobia, quote unquote, inherited was territories, for the most part, that had been ruled by her husband, as far as we understand. So it wasn't so much that once Zenobia came on the scene, she conquered all this territory. The real issue was, did she have any legitimate claim to holding on to the territory You know, he had effectively controlled? When he launched these campaigns and Odonathus besieged Tessaphon twice, the records say that he took Zenobia and his elder son, Hiron, with him. So they had military experience. They were, you know, along with the soldiers on campaign. And I think it did a lot for their reputations. It did a lot for their standing and their legitimacy with the army, with the, the regional commanders and governors, etc. Now, Hiron was assassinated at the same time as Odonathus, and then it was just left as Zenobia and her younger son, Babalathus. But I think that's kind of the genesis. She developed this reputation by joining him on campaign, and one assumes, you know, exhibiting courage, positive traits, taking responsibility, etc. He's murdered, and she has to make a decision, and she's got two start choices in front of her. One is do the legal thing which is, okay, I can't technically inherit any of my husband's titles. They're non-hereditary. I can't call myself or my son Dux Orientis, or he even got proclaimed Imperator at one stage. I can't call you know myself or my son that. So if I'm going to do the legal thing, I'm just going to drop back to being a local Roman client queen of Palmyra. Or <laughs> we can all pretend that my husband's titles were inheritable. Now, I'm going to pass them on to my son, and then we're going to pretend like nothing has really changed. And I'm just going to keep ruling the way he did and try to maintain this thing we've built you know, together. And it's fine. <laughs> As Scott mentioned, if Gallienus had conspired to kill Odonathus... He didn't get long to enjoy his success. Within a year, he was dead, and the throne passed to Claudius II, better known as Claudius Gothicus, for having beaten the Goths. He was the first of a new kind of emperor. He wasn't a senator raised in Rome. He was an Illyrian from what is now Serbia. He was a rough and ready soldier, having been a soldier his whole life, and he led like it. When Zenobia took over power, we don't really know what Gallienus thought about it because he got murdered himself pretty shortly afterwards. Right. And then Claudius Gothicus took power. And there is a strange and super cryptic mention in the Historia Augusta. So the Praetorian prefect for Claudius Gothicus was a guy named Heraclianus. He'd also been involved in the murder plot to kill Gallienus, etc. Claudius apparently, quote-unquote, sent Heraclianus off to the east to take up the fight against the Persians. But there's this line in the Historia Augusta that says this. It says, This Heraclianus, however on setting out against the Persians, was defeated by the Palmyrenes and lost all the troops he had gathered. For Zenobia was ruling Palmyra and most of the east with the vigor of a man. Hmm. If you read between the lines, it sounds like Claudius may have been sending Heraclianus to go take Palmyra back under the pretense of, oh, we're just sending him over to fight the Persians. Zenobia caught on and sent him packing back home. Hmm. If that's true, what that means is Zenobia probably developed the impression that, hey, I drove off a Roman army. Maybe Roman emperors, Roman armies aren't anything I really need to worry about all that much. And then shortly after that, there was some kind of skirmish with the Persians because her son took the title of Persicus Maximus. And then Claudius Gothicus took the same title at the same time. So that kind of shows he was acclimating to the, to the reality of Zenobia ruling in the East. Like, okay, well, I'll just take advantage of her victories. Mm -hmm. This is, again, subject to speculation. But if she literally just won 
victories against a Roman army and the Sassanids, maybe there's no reason for timidity. Maybe you can start thinking grander, and maybe that leads to her idea to conquer Egypt. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. You, I've got the most powerful force around. Right. Get control of Egypt, get control of the grain supply, then I can talk terms to Aurelian, Claudius, or whoever <laughs> came after Claudius, eventually Aurelian. Claudius got the plague. After big victories against Alamanni and the Goths, he caught the plague that had ravaged Rome and died two years after taking over. So now his brother Quintilus was emperor. Now Zenobia had had enough with these weak and insignificant emperors. Quintilus didn't look any better than Claudius. In fact, he looked worse. So she started her move. She took Arabia, and then Egypt, and then Anatolia, all in the name of Vabalathus, and all under the aegis of the empire. Quintilus lasted somewhere between three and six months, and in those months he did nothing to stop Zenobia. And then he killed himself, or else his troops killed him, under pressure from a new usurper, the general Aurelian, yet another Illyrian. Aurelian was different. But Zenobia didn't know that. She declared Vabalathus emperor and herself Augusta. Gallienus goes and then there's uh, Claudius and of course then he gets the plague and then his, <laughs> the, his successor lasts for like a week or two. And then, then Aurelian comes in and, and she's like, well, you know, we're, we'll start making coins. We have all this stuff. We've got Aurelian <laughs> on the on the front and, and we're on the back and it's we're just we're great. Right, right. We're all, we're all chums here. Aurelian, very interesting person, right? He's called the emperor that Rome needed at the sure. time, the necessary emperor, right? <laughs> he reunites the empire, puts the Gallic Empire in its place, comes comes for Zenobia. And why did he have such a visceral dislike to this power sharing which had gone on and which would end up becoming the standard with Diocletian and, and, the, and the formalized split of the empire. What was it about Aurelian that made him a successful in, in combining the empire again? But why do you even bother doing it? <laughs> well, it's a good question. I think maybe it's a matter of thinking it's your destiny. Maybe it's a matter of being the first emperor to come along in a while who actually had both a little bit of a window to try to accomplish some of this stuff, as well as loyal enough legions. And for loyal, you can read scared. He scared the heck out of them with his extremely austere discipline. Knowing anything about him, I think he would have had zero interest in sharing power with somebody that maybe he considered an equal was one thing. But essentially a queen with zero you know, legal Roman legitimacy, and especially somebody who had just invaded both Egypt and, and conquered Egypt and was currently in the process of invading Anatolia. Aurelian first took care of business on the German border and then came east. Before Zenubia knew what hit her, he was already at Byzantium. He marched through Anatolia as each city promptly threw their doors open to him. They had no long-standing loyalty to Palmyra. The first town that resisted was Tiana, near the Cilician Gates. Aurelian had a nasty temper. He shouted that in this town he would not leave even a dog alive. Well, that inspired his soldiers, as they expected some high-quality plundering. But it also steeled the resolve of the town. You know, might as well fight to the death, he's going to kill us anyway. Finally, a local let Aurelian's forces in through the back door. But the emperor held them off. He knew that the only way he could reunite the empire was to channel Caesar and show some mercy. Tiana would be spared. The soldiers protested, You said not even the dogs would live. Well, kill the dogs then. And the traitor. Can't stand traitors. The soldiers actually laughed at this. Now, I don't know if they gleefully killed the dogs, but they seemed to appreciate Aurelian's sense of humor. The rest of the East got the message too, and Zenobia withdrew her forces to unite at Antioch. There, her troops, equal to Aurelian's and more knowledgeable of the terrain, would make their stand. Zenobia's cavalry, called cataphracts, were like tanks. They were heavily armored and impossible to stop. Usually. Aurelian figured out a plan. 
He waited until midday, which is hot in Syria, and then made his light cavalry engage the Palmyrenes and then run away. The Palmyrenes thought they had the Romans on the run and chased them, until finally the hot sun exhausted the armored cataphracts and their horses, and they just collapsed. Made them pretty easy pickings at that point. Well, that was it for Zenobia. She withdrew the rest of the forces to Emesa, lost there as well, only this time it was her infantry that failed, and then her final last stand in Palmyra. Now, Aurelian didn't want to destroy Palmyra. He needed it to defend the east. Remember, the problems that Gallienus had suffered hadn't gone away. The Persians were still there. The empire was still recovering from disease and war. Aurelian needed a strong Palmyra. He just wanted that Palmyra to be loyal to him. So he tried to convince Zenobia to come quietly. He wrote a letter. He says... From Aurelian, Emperor of the Roman world and Recoverer of the East, to Zenobia and all those who are bound to her alliance in war. You should have done of your own free will what I now command in my letter, for I bid you surrender, promising your lives shall be spared, with the condition that you, Zenobia, together with your children, shall dwell wherever I, acting in accordance with the wish of the most noble senate, shall appoint a place. Your jewels, your gold, your silver, your silks, your horses, your camels, you shall all hand over to the Roman treasury. As for the people of Palmyra, their rights shall be preserved. Zenobia wrote back. From Zenobia, queen of the east, to Aurelian Augustus. None save yourself have ever demanded, by letter, what you now demand. Whatever must be accomplished in matters of war must be done by valor alone. You demand my surrender as though you were not aware that Cleopatra preferred to die a queen rather than remain alive, however high her rank? We shall not lack reinforcements from Persia, which we are even now expecting. On our side are the Saracens, on our side the Armenians. The brigands of Syria have defeated your army, Aurelian. What more need to be said? And if those forces then which we are expecting from every side shall arrive, you will, to be sure, lay aside that arrogance with which you have now commanded my surrender. Aurelian was displeased, and the siege was on. And eventually, Zenobia knew the game was up. Palmyrus didn't have enough defenses to hold off. So she tried to escape on the back of a camel, which was much faster than a horse, at least according to the Syrians. She made it all the way to the Euphrates, seeking asylum in Persia. She got on the boat, and at the moment she pushed away from the bank, the Roman horsemen arrived. She was caught. The histories are divided about Zenobia's fate after she loses, right? She ends up riding a camel to get out of Dodge. Right. She gets out of Palmyra. They end up catching her. Right. He doesn't loot the city. Then the city rebels, and then you lose the city, right? You get you get one chance, you're fine. You second chance, you're out. <laughs> yeah, you get one chance with Aurelian, right? So there's some stories that say, "Oh, yeah, she's she's dead. She's you know taken back to Rome. We know she goes back to Rome. She's in chains." Some that say that she's killed after the triumph. There's others that say that she's married off to a senator and lives a happy life forever. <laughs> right? <laughs> What's your take? <laughs> Yeah, it's no, it is funny. I mean, you know, obviously I have no inside knowledge, but you got to try to go with the reliability of the sources. And oddly enough, one of the typically most reliable sources, who's Zosimus, is the one that kills her off earliest. He basically says she essentially starves herself on the boat back between Asia and Europe. And then all the other boats sink. So basically, I guess that would be your son going down to the depths along with all the you know other folks there. But unfortunately, and, and I guess that's a weird way to put it, but unfortunately, I kind of believe the story that she probably lived a long, you know, if not necessarily happy life in kind of gilded exile at some villa outside of Rome. And her story is a compelling one because it has all these interesting elements about making this defiant stand against, you know, these superior forces and this unstoppable force in the name of Aurelian, essentially. She does a lot of very heroic and commendable things. And I think some of the battles that she loses are not 
lopsided defeats. They're essentially near things. So it is something where if you're Aurelian, you see the hand of the gods tipping the tide a certain way. But her last desperate action when Palmyra was besieged, like you say, was mount a camel, ride for the Euphrates, and try to enlist the help of the Persians. And I mean, the Persians were the bitterest foes of the Palmyrians for decades. And to kind of have it to you know, that level of desperation just kind of shows you how, how far things had gone. So. so let's think a little bit about Zenobia's legacy. You think about the Eastern women and how Eastern women have been portrayed in Roman histories, like Cleopatra, devious Eastern succubus from, the, you know, <laughs> from, from Egypt. You have Berenike, who's trying to seduce Titus with her sorcerous ways. You have the, the various Severan women in their control of the empire and all the things they're doing. But Zenobia is shown as, you know, this warrior queen, great fighter. Like, it seems so positive. Yeah. Relative to every other Eastern woman we've met <laughs> in Roman land. It's true. I mean, the Roman sources, they love Odinathus. Like, they trip over themselves about how he saved the empire, how his name was enough to make the Persians tremble. And so you'd figure once he was killed, even if Zenobia did a so-so job, you'd figure they wouldn't have a lot of great things to say about her. But all the sources basically compare her to Odinathus. They're like, you know, he died and she took up the thing and did just as good a job. You got the story of Augusta saying she surpassed in courage and skill, not merely Gallienus, but also many an emperor. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of astounding. And there's got to be a nugget there where... It wouldn't come down, I think, so universally positive unless that was, to, to a certain extent, a fair characterization of how she was perceived at the time. There are certain other kind of logics you can apply to the people writing the story. You know, maybe you talk her up so that, you know, Aurelian's defeat of her sounds like a larger feat. But I don't know. I, I, I still think that, you know, I, I think a lot of the sources must have some truth in there that she was pretty remarkable, pretty well regarded, and maybe her biggest crime was hubris and overreach and trying to take Egypt. But, but then again, you know, I don't know if uh, the Palmyrene Empire, as it was, was economically viable without Egypt. So it might have been, you know, yeah. uh, you know, darned if you do and darned if you don't. So. Yeah, you kind of feel that they have to, you feel they almost have to have it just even for nothing else than to re-establish some ports in the Red Sea to right. be able to reconnect the, yeah. the trade to India. I, I I think there's, it's one of those cases, if, if you look at who she's been dealing with, that the Romans haven't had much in the way of successful generalship for a really oh, long yeah. time. <laughs> you know, you kind of figure it's worth the gamble. And I don't I don't blame her for it. I mean, I think she ultimately came up against again that 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 unmovable rock in in Aurelian <laughs> that was or unstoppable force because yeah. is, is the white. Yeah, you highlight another great point, which is her whole life she hadn't seen a successful emperor in the East. She'd never witnessed such a thing. So, you know, it may have been a failure of imagination to see Aurelian as something fundamentally different. But I, I think she was, you know, from an experience standpoint, she was on pretty solid footing. Emperors came East to get killed or captured alive by the Sassanids. And they didn't come east to win victories. And so she probably had an unrealistic feeling about her own power or ability to resist Rome, but it, it didn't come out of nowhere. Palmyra lived on, but after the failed rebellion against Aurelian, there wasn't much left. Eventually, the trade route shifted again, and centuries later, Western explorers found it in the desert, a ruined city, with a village nestled inside the courtyard of the Temple of Bel, the date palms still waving in the desert breeze. Eventually, Palmyra was reborn as Syria's number one tourist site, which isn't saying much. Syria has never been a massive draw, particularly after the rise of Hafez Assad and the Ba'athist dictatorship in the 1960s. But for some intrepid travelers, the appeal of seeing the remarkably well-preserved ruins drew them to the dusty oasis town. So now I'm going to bring on listener Dave Adam from Racine, Wisconsin, 
by day, treasurer of Johnston Bank. By night, archaeology enthusiast and world traveler. He visited Palmyra in 2001. Why did you choose to go to Syria? My interest in archaeology started growing up in Wisconsin. I led a fairly sheltered life, but I went to school in London, and I ended up spending more time in the pubs and in the British Museum than I did in my studies, and that got me interested in ancient cultures. The idea of going to both Jordan and Syria really appealed to me. Unfortunately, it ended up coinciding with the tragedy of 9-11 when I was over there. I was actually in Palmyra the morning of the event, and it was quite traumatic, but Palmyra itself, it didn't deter from its beauty. It was quite a lovely place. Yeah, so what was it like to, to go there, to make your way across the desert to, to find this ruined city by the oasis? Interesting. In terms of the drive, it was about three hours from Damascus. The scenery was somewhat analogous to perhaps being either in western Kansas or Death Valley <laughs> or a combination thereof because it was very flat and boring. Oh my. If you haven't been to either one of those places, consider it to be something like the beige subdivisions of the 1990s that cropped up. Just flatten the houses and leave the beige there. <laughs> uh, it's it pretty, pretty ugly and pretty flat, but that made it all the more dramatic when we actually approached Palmyra. We got there in the evening, and there's a citadel that overlooks the ruins of the Roman era, some of the Muslim-related buildup after that and the small town of Tadmor, which kind of abuts that. But Tadmor as a city is pretty small, so it made the ruins stick out even more. And seeing the sunset over the sites in Palmyra and the distant vista you could get from the citadel, which spanned for miles and miles, what was pretty impressive. That citadel on top, it looks like it have an amazing view of, of the whole area. What was it like to visit the temples of Bel and Balshamin and, and the rest? Uh, interesting from a couple of perspectives. One is there were very few people there. I was probably sharing the whole site with two other Germans and my guide, which made it uh, very impressive because you get the sense of maybe I, I could be walking through the Cardo Maximus of Rome in the second century in this city and feel as though I was actually there. I think that the things that attracted me the, the most in Palmyra itself, uh, due to the fairly dry and arid climate, uh, much of what was there in terms of the paint on a lot of the things remained, which was beautiful. You don't get that very often in the pollution-intensive parts of Europe that many other Roman remains are there. No. I think the, the two things that I thought the most interesting, in addition to the Temple of Bell, which was magnificent from its pure size and awesome presence, were the funerary tombs. And there were two of them there. The first one was the Tower of Elibal, which was about four stories tall, one of the tallest buildings in the area next to the Temple of Bell. And you could climb up to the top of it and get some great views of the desert. In addition, much like a mausoleum today where you see people that are buried and you tend to get the edge or the end side of the casket facing out, they did a similar thing at the Tower of El Abal and they had stone figureheads of the people that were inside cast, many of whom still had that painting on them. And the eyes that stared back at me really gave me a sense of the finality and the brevity of life because there were people that lived their lives two millennia ago in many cases, and they look as live as, as perhaps you or I would. Uh, the other one that was interesting and even perhaps more impressive was the Hypogeum of the Three Brothers, which was an underground tomb that had an entrance that I found kind of similar to the Valley of the Dead near Luxor in Egypt, where you had to go down a ways. Yeah, yeah. Then when you get into it, you see a whole series of chambers. And this one in particular was bigger than most of the ones I saw in Egypt. Egyptian ones were typically built for a god and perhaps a few other people in his uh, possessions. But the one in Palmyra, the hypogeum of the three brothers, held up to 360 people. So it was wow. more like a communal grave site that also had many stone sculptures, although some of that stuff was taken back to Damascus and put in their uh, state museum. But both of those, from more from a funerary perspective, I think kind of surprised me because I hadn't anticipated that. It's it's interesting to get that view into the, the humanity of those people 2,000 years ago. The Muslim repurposing of some of the Roman ruins that served as their fortresses and they had taken 
vertical columns. And the ones that were done in Palmyra were actually done with some iron reinforcing or rebar. So they would have been almost like little stacks of stone that were put on top of one another, reinforced with a rod going up. And if you take the rod out and tip the column over, you've got these oversized bottle caps, much heavier and much bigger. But they took those and they plastered them into the wall. So they made these tiny, like you mentioned, Lincoln log type devices going up to serve as their wall fortress. These were columns that were fairly small, and from a distance you get the impression that someone had bottle capped a stone wall, when in reality it was repurposed columns. So that was unusual. I hadn't seen that before, and there's a picture of that that I sent over that you may also put on your website that gives you a sense much better than I can of describing what it looked like. So so what other memories do you have of visiting Palmyra? Once we got to the Citadel, saw the views, we went to our hotel. It was called the Middle East Hotel. It was a three-star, which the Syrian to Western equivalent probably is dividing it by two. So it was probably a one-and-a-half star <laughs> in the Western, Western world. But I get there, and I walk up to it, and my guide's with me, and the place is totally dark. And I'm thinking, wow, what have I got myself into here? This is a good fellow's moment where maybe this is the end here. <laughs> but after we knocked on the door for a few minutes, somebody came out, opened the door, and turned on all the lights in the place. I was kind of caught off guard by that. Why would they need to have the lights turned off? Well, as it turned out, I was the only guest there in the four-story hotel for the evening. And after they turned the lights on, the bellman came in and took my pack to the third floor. And I went to bed and turned on my fan. Uh, all good and all normal. But at 2 o'clock in the morning, the fan suddenly turned off. And I kind of woke up because it was a bit sticky. And my lights didn't work in my room. And I thought, I wonder what happened. must have been a brief power outage. So I went back to bed, but I got up at 5 with my watch alarm and decided I wanted to go explore Palmyra at sunrise because it looked like it would be an awesome place at sunrise as it was the previous evening at sunset. So I walk down the steps with my flashlight and I get to the lobby area and I trip over a body. What? I think it was either the bellboy or the receptionist. There were four guys that were just sleeping in the lobby area and oh. that was probably where they lived okay. so i apologized for stepping on this guy and, and told him not to worry i didn't need to have breakfast or anything i was going to go out and go for a walk about and i did and you got to see some of the ruins of palmyra everything but the temple of bell was pretty much open without requiring admission so there wasn't a lot of gated entrances or whatever have you and you could see as the sun was rising things went from a rusty color to a bright pink because the sun in a fairly flat environment in the desert without a lot of trees to impede upon the, the color spectrum and without a lot of light pollution or air pollution, I should say, seeing some of the colonnades and the columns themselves that were unlike the typical things I would see in Rome that were fairly plain until you got to the top where it would be a a Doric, Ionic, or Corinthian temple. Mm -hmm. These were sort of grooved in in a curved manner, almost to give the impression of a tree, because there weren't that many trees out in that part of the desert. Mm. And I think what they liked to do was, in some respects, mimic what they didn't have. They had a lot of stone, but not a lot of trees, so they made these columns in a columnar fashion that created a spiral going up to the top that gave the appearance from a distance of a tree. So I thought it was kind of interesting. I was kind of meandering about. I ran across a Bedouin woman who invited me to come over, uh, and I did. It was about 7.30, and I thought I would interact with her a little bit. And she took me into her small house slash hut that had four little boys running around. They were ages 6 to 12, we couldn't communicate. She didn't speak English. I didn't speak Arabic, but we did kind of talk via sign language. Mm-hmm. She gave me some tea and I gave her some money. And her kids really wanted my flashlight. They were all hip on that. But I didn't give it to them <laughs> because after having the previous experience from the last night, I thought this is the only flashlight I've got. I did give them some of my pens and so forth. But as I thought about it then, and much more so later, I had two boys that were five and six at the time. And they were both taller than these guys who were from five or six to 11. So these kids were short. And thinking about the struggles that Syria went through in the decade and a half that has followed, I wonder what happened to those kids. You sent a picture, and we'll have that on the website. These boys, and they they look smart and vibrant and enthusiastic. And then you you think about where they might be today if they have made it through. And it's just the scale of the human tragedy as much as the archaeological tragedy of Palmyra. 
when you were in Syria, were there any other places that you visited that were really intriguing or interesting? A couple. There's a quite a bit to see in Syria, which makes what's happened there so sad. And much of it probably isn't in the same state as it was back in 2011. There's a city called Basra that's there, which has a theater that seats about 15,000 people. It's probably one of the best preserved theaters in that corner of the, the Middle East slash Mediterranean. What makes it so well preserved is that it's been used pretty much in continuous operation since that time. And around this theater are built a series of houses and shops and so forth. So when you approach it, you come into it thinking this is a subdivision slash a Middle Eastern strip mall of sorts, Mm -hmm. but a little bit higher in scale in terms of probably four or five stories. So I walked up to it and my guide said, okay, I want you to turn around. So I said, okay, I'll turn around. And I want you to take 15 steps backwards. And I thought, what's he going to have me do here? But I did it. So I took 15 steps back and he said, okay, turn around. And I turned around and it was this beautiful theater that had the seats that were as well-preserved and sort of in a grayish, blackish kind of color, where many of the stuff that we saw in Syria was more beige and tan. This was grayish black as if it had been suited through the passage of time and and pollution and so forth. Also in Basra, there was a couple of other neat things. I think the other one that stuck out to me was the Cryptoporticus, which is sort of a semi-below ground area where merchants held their goods mm. and at the cardo level they would actually sell it but they would store their stuff kind of in quote the basement which would be a level below the main street level probably because it would have been cooler and it was also out of the way so real estate probably would have been in a prime at the oh, cardo yeah. and the other piece that's a little bit less well known were the dead cities which were these byzantine churches maybe citadel slash castles that have since fallen into disrepair and hardly anyone visits them. In effect, they become lived in by local Syrians, at least they were back in 2001, where you could be walking through these ruins and seeing these churches and semi-castles, and they happen to have had clotheslines on them, clothes hanging on them, people were living in them. So that was sort of interesting to walk through, through that part of it. But then came the Syrian civil war and ISIS. In 2015, they drove government troops from Palmyra and set explosives all over the ruins which stood between the town and the withdrawing government troops. This was common practice. What wasn't common practice was the explosions. ISIS would typically sell art and antiquities to fund their campaign, as brutal violence and genocide generally don't provide meaningful economic development. But the Palmyra-born 82-year-old archaeologist Khalid al-Assad, not related to dictator Bashar al-Assad, had carefully packaged and sent out the artifacts from the museum before ISIS arrived. For his dedication, he was beheaded in the central square, and the temples of Bel and Balshamin obliterated. The government has since retaken the city, but the loss of al-Assad, who loved his city so much, He named his daughter Zenobia, and the temples he spent his life caring for, those are irreplaceable. I don't feel much like talking about food, but a gimmick is a gimmick, so here we go. While you're in Syria, was there any sort of food that jumped out at you? You know I like the food on the show. I'm afraid I'm not the culinary expert that I should be on that one. We had a lot of different kinds of things. Much of it for breakfast were the typical Middle Eastern fare of of vegetables, tomatoes, cucumbers, hummus, a few sweet pastries. But I think the the things that stuck out to me the most probably were were twofold. One of them was my guide and driver who I hired were very willing to give me food of theirs and to try different things, whether it's pistachio nuts or little pastries here or there. So I happened to have taken along some blueberry bagels with me from the U.S. In reciprocity, I I said, here, I'd like to give you guys try something. It's called a bagel. And neither the guide or driver had seen a bagel before, and it caught him off guard. So they began to pepper me with questions like, well, does it have alcohol in it? What's it made of? Uh, Can I eat this? What should I do? And and they were very much uh, taken aback. And they each, I think out of kindness, had a small nibble of it uh, and said they were full and put the rest in a napkin. And at the end of the trip, 
in that cooler that we had been using to kind of get liquids out of that uh, napkin was still there with a full bagel. So they didn't touch it after that, but they were very kind to have tried it. <laughs> the other thing that stuck out was in that breakfast I had in Palmyra, after I did the walkabout, I came back, had a brief breakfast. But because I had kind of an intestinal thing going on, I wasn't eating very much. So I left much of the food that there. And at noon that day, my guide came up to me and said, hey, what's going on? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, uh, you didn't have any breakfast. And I said, well, I really wasn't very hungry. And he said, you should have breakfast. And it didn't hit me right away. But then I thought about it some more. I thought the two cooks that were there and the waiter that were serving me, that might have been the only guest they had all day. And I kind of turned around and didn't really show them probably the right sense of love by not eating much. So mm. thereafter, when I was in Syria, I would take food, whether I could eat it or not, and I'd shove it in my backpack. Uh, and sometimes I ate it, sometimes I gave it to the birds, sometimes I uh, uh, threw it out. But at least I showed good faith by taking food, whether I wanted it or not, so they felt good on their end. There were a lot of nice lamb dishes and chicken kebabs, so they, they were good at the, the lamb and chicken side of things. And the, the vegetable side was also pretty good, but no single dish sticks out to me as being awesome. That's all right. No, that's, that's a good view. The point about hospitality, both the receiving and the taking, is a really good one to think about. We'll take the bagel, even though we don't really want to try the bagel. <laughs> Thank you profusely <laughs> for it. And then, you know, the same way, it's, you know, if you're offered it, you really need to, to take it, even if you just don't feel like eating. It, how important it is to show your gratitude for it. It's, that's great. Syrian food is very much like Lebanese, Jordanian, Palestinian, Israeli, and Turkish. You know the drill by now. I'd like to talk today about the art of eating a Syrian meal, particularly the beginning, the meza. The meza is a giant spread of appetizers. It's popular across the eastern Mediterranean, but it's de rigueur in Syria. What's in a meza? Everything! You have spreads like hummus and baba ganoush. You have pickled vegetables, like olives. You have meat dishes like stuffed grape leaves. Or veggie dishes like little marinated eggplants stuffed with walnuts. And raw vegetables like radishes. And all of the above, all with freshly baked bread so you can mix and match and grab and do your thing. And after the meza comes salad like tabula, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, or fatouche, which is basically a basic salad with a minty vinaigrette and fried chunks of bread, croutons. Then your main course is a meat of some sort, maybe kebabs or chicken nicely roasted. And finally dessert, where honey, sugar, and dates bring a sticky deliciousness. The most famous dessert I'm saving for a later episode because it was invented in Istanbul. But in the meantime, since Palmyra is, was, and maybe someday will be again, an oasis town filled with date palms, let's talk about mamul, cookies stuffed with dates. Typically eaten for Eid after Ramadan or for Easter for the Christian population, which is about 10% of Syria, mamul are sweet delicacies to reward having fasted during Ramadan or Lent. Basically, they are shortbread cookies, not too sweet, filled with an orange water-scented date puree and dusted with powdered sugar. There's a whole ritual to making these, including a specifically designed wooden mold to shape them. You can use your hand, but the mold looks really cool if you can find one. I'll have a recipe on the website soonish. One last thought on Palmyra and Zenobia. The destruction of the temples of Bel and Bashamin is not just the wanton annihilation of Syrians' cultural heritage, the destruction of the sort of place that a future Syrian economy would need to bring in hard currency. It's an attack on all of us. Medieval authors like Chaucer thought Zenobia was a myth. And now that we know she was real, we're richer for remembering and poorer for having lost the physical connection to her, to temples she would have prayed in. Unfortunately, ISIS is not alone in the world in seeking to destroy the past to create a new future. Throughout history, we've had book burnings. One of the reasons so few sites, artwork, and literature remain from antiquity is the wanton destruction by Christians seeking to cleanse Roman civilization of its pagan roots. This sadly isn't new, but we can always hope and pray that Palmyra, 
is the last time. It won't be, but we can pray. The crisis of the third century will continue. Aurelian, builder of the Roman walls, reuniter of the empire, great as he was, crucial as he was, only lasted five years before he too was killed by his own troops. One of his most lasting achievements, interestingly enough, was naming a town in central France. We call it Orléans, Aurelian, which means that the city we started the episode off with, the one whose Palmyra Street was ruined by that hurricane, New Orleans, New Orleans, Nouvelle Orléans, bears the name of that very Aurelian. But New Orleans is back, as is Palmyra Street. And that gives me a tad more hope. Get it? Get it? Tad more? Oh, that's good. You know that's good. The next nine years in Roman history would bring six more emperors, until finally the seventh would remake the empire, and indeed the entire map of Europe. It's hard to understate how much of the world we now inhabit began with this next emperor, and his palace still stands. Sort of. Diocletian and his palace in split, next time on The Wonders of the World. Thank you again for listening, downloading, and sharing the show. An enormous thank you again to Scott Chesworth from The Ancient World. Scott's podcast is one of the absolute best, as I've said, to cover antiquity. You simply must hear it. That's just a thing you have to do. Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to, to chat today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. And also an amazing thank you to Dave Adam, listener, who emailed me and said, hey, I've been to Palmyra. I'd love to talk about it. That's the kind of spirit I like to hear. Tremendous thank you. His photos are going to be on the website as soon as I can figure out how to make them work. And uh, they're amazing. And I highly recommend you check them out. Thank you again, Dave. And if any of you have been to Split Croatia and would like to talk about it, give me a ring. The website is wonderspodcast.com. The Facebook is Wonders Podcast. The Twitter is at Wonders Podcast. And you can email me, as Dave did, at wonderspodcast at gmail. Again, any iTunes reviews or other reviews are greatly appreciated. It makes a huge difference. Thank you all so much. It has been an absolute wonder the last few weeks to hear um, well wishes, good thoughts, and uh, recommendations. So thank you so much. It really makes it worthwhile for me, and I'm really glad that you are getting value out of this. So hope you enjoyed today's episode. We'll see you next time.